Hello and welcome to No Idea, the podcast aimed at providing individuals with a clear and comprehensive understanding of IDEA. I'm one of your hosts, Hunter Kuhnert. I'm joined by Karen Hazy and Kelly Bill. Hello. Today, we're going to go over just a brief explanation of, of special education process, as well as kind of round out what this looks like moving forward. At this point in time, we'll be recording once a month, looking at 30 to 45 minutes for each topic. Some topics may take multiple uh, episodes. This may be one of them. Um, to start off, we're just going to go over the special education process, and at the end, we'll give you some more details, email if you have additional questions, as well as a Twitter handle. All right, special education process. When looking at special education, there's a, this is the tip of the iceberg, but it's pretty well down there. <laughs> um, this can start in a number of ways, the biggest piece being child find. As any uh, individual knows, child find is uh, thought process or the, the um belief that there may be an individual in your school district or county that has a disability. Once that starts, the, the entire process itself starts. And what that looks like is maybe a pre-meeting, maybe a bit meeting, maybe some, as Karen's dealt with in the past, uh, teacher in need of, uh, what is that? Teacher intervention plan or team. teacher in need of assistance. And, so and Hunter, just explain there. to the listeners what a bit meeting is, if some do not know. So you may be using the MTSS process or multi-tiered uh, systems of support. You may be using the RTI um, model. Uh, and the idea being is you're, you're kind of, there's a red flag that comes up within the school district or a parent or someone else has brought up that aligns a child find. From there, the uh, team meets, ideally it's, you know, the school district administrator, teacher, uh, maybe support staff or another teacher, in, uh, including a parent. And then from there, there's a further discussion as to what we're seeing, what the concerns are, and in what areas. Um, it may be that mom brings a, a letter saying from her doctor saying, hey, my kid has ADHD. We've seen that a million different times. Or, hey, you know, and in some instances, like Kelly or myself or even Karen have seen, oh, hey, my kid's in the hospital. And suddenly it's like, well, what's going on here? And maybe the team had no idea. Um, so from there, you kind of convene and you make further determinations. In my mind, it is it is kind of the understanding, sorry, my dog is making some noises, <laughs> that the this is kind of where the, the slip-up occurs. And in most cases where either it's not handled appropriately or there, there's a rush to evaluation. One thing I think Kelly, Karen, and I kind of worked on with them in the past together on is making sure there's a, enough information to move forward. If you just test for special education, there's 13 categories. You're bound to hit something there at times, especially under OHI. We'll get into those details in a little bit. Uh, but as you start yes. the process, go ahead, Kelly. Yes, Sorry. and knowing that we have enough information to move forward. A lot of times what I see is um, teachers just saying, well, I need to test for special education because um, they they just can't read. They can't. Well, there has to be enough documentation to be able to test for special ed. Well, and let me hop in here and share just sort of the 10,000 foot legal view. Um, and one of the things that I think we don't always explain very well to parents or to classroom staff is that the IDEA has an inherent tension built into it. Uh, out of the one side of its mouth, the federal government tells us that we have to go out and look for and find and test students who we suspect may have a disability. And then out of the other side of its mouth, the federal government says, oh, but you have to have a multi-tiered system of supports or a response to intervention or some kind of process so that we aren't just too quickly jumping from a student who might have some struggles to 
automatically pathologic, making that a pathology and somehow calling that disabled. And I think when we, especially when we talk to parents, but also with classroom staff, it's like push and pull, right? What do you want me to do? Do you want me to, to focus on some kind of tier one and tier two interventions, or do you want me to jump straight to testing? And I think every special ed director that's listening to this needs to have a really clear process articulated for gen ed and special ed staff to know what in our district is this multi-tiered systems of supports and at the same time be looking if a parent has asked for a quote-unquote special ed evaluation we either have to evaluate or we have to issue prior written notice saying that we're going to wait for the tiered systems to to work and i guess kelly and hunter I'd, i'd be interested in knowing from a practical perspective how do you make that decision when a teacher comes to you and says, I think this kid needs to be tested? How do you know when it's time to run him or her through the multi-tiered systems or time to jump straight to testing? And on my side, and this is kind of talking inside the shop, I usually have a pre-meeting. What's going on? What are we seeing? Hey, you know, mom's saying there's some concern here. And obviously that pre-meeting needs to occur rather rapidly. And, and I don't know uh, a lot of uh, individuals or a lot of directors out there, administrators, what their beliefs are, but a lot of those pre-meetings save me time. Why? Because I don't want that to go, oh, let's get everybody in the same room and let's have a discussion. Because one teacher may say one thing, one teacher may say another thing, and that's where we can really find ourselves in a bind. Well, they're saying they're inattentive in this classroom, but not inattentive in this classroom. Well, that, that sounds like ADHD. That sounds, here's that diagnosis I have. So I think that that's something that's rather And I always make sure we look at the data as well. Mm-hmm. You know, 100%. bring me the data that shows me what interventions you have tried with this student and how they've worked. And then, like Hunter said, having a meeting, discussing this, and making a team decision. Do we need to test or do we need to try more interventions? The biggest piece here is, I apologize, based on that decision, a prior written notice does need to be issued. And one thing, uh, Karen, I'm going to ask you is, when we have a parent say, hey, I want to test, basically in the CFR, it's in writing. Is that correct? Yes, the parent request must be to, to trigger our obligation to issue prior written notice. It has to be in writing uh, and it has to be expressed to some administrative staff member in the district. So a parent telling a teacher, I want my kid tested, just mentioning that at the grocery store is not enough on its own. But here's what I worry about. It could be enough to place that suspicion within the teacher's mind. And so I think every time any parent mentions special ed to any teacher, I want that being pushed up the chain of command yes. to whoever is making the decisions about whether we're going to call a student assistance team, whether we're going to call a 504 uh, committee, whether we're going to refer the child for testing. I want that decision not made by the poor kindergarten teacher who got caught in the frozen food section at the grocery store, you know. And we've and, all been there. Yep. Yeah. And- and, and as we go into this, we'll eventually kind of touch upon FERPA a little bit and how that aligns to IDEA, but that's not probably not this episode. And I think it's really important when those discussions have for any staff member, especially outside of, of school. Hey, I like that discussion. Let's let's meet later. But you are right. And, that teacher and staff for our member. for our parent yeah. listeners, if you want your child tested, you should send an email to the special ed director and say, mm-hmm. I would like my child tested. You have now put the school on notice that this is your desire, and then the school either has to test or has to issue a prior written notice explaining why it's not going to test. And And that clarity, I I think, is helpful for everybody. Yes. One thing, and I didn't really touch upon in the uh, introductory piece of this, was this podcast started off by, I think it was one Thanksgiving break, and I was listening to, I was on a drive. It's like an hour drive. And I started looking at sped podcasts because I'm interested. 
And I think there was one very prominent popular one that I downloaded and listened to. And that individual given some advice like, hey, if they don't test, you sue. That's that's not the best advice. The understanding of the district, uh, of the, any teacher, anybody that works within a building is they want to do what's best for that kid. That's there right. are some hiccups occasionally. But I think as long as we work through the process and even like understanding, you put that in writing, you give that to that administrator, whether it's an email, whether you handwrite the letter, say, hey, here you go. Like Karen said, it puts them on notice. And it's going to be very, very, very rare that anyone ignores that, especially because of the case law. I mean, Andrew, I mean, any of those recent cases where the child fight, it, it does get triggered. And it is one of those things where, I mean, even as myself as an administrator, when someone comes and goes, I think this kid, may, there might be something here. Cool. Have you guys met? Have we started the process? Where are we at? What tier are we on? Do we need to skip those tiers? What, what is that looking like? So Kelly, in the virtual environment, what does that look like for you? Well, in the virtual environment, it seems to bring a whole new set of problems, <laughs> as we've seen. But usually, and one of the things that I get a lot of are, you know, kids come in and out of the virtual environment constantly. And mm-hmm. teach are and principals, you know, not knowing their students, not, and all of a sudden, I've got a kid who then is falling behind who has been for six weeks or seven weeks. And then all of a sudden the parent goes, oh, well, they have ADHD. Okay. Child find should have been initiated back six weeks ago. I mean, the communication, I think in the virtual environment has to definitely be there even much stronger than in the BRICS environment, because, um, you know, we don't, we don't see each other on a day. We do, but we don't, it's through the computer. It's, so we have to have that very, very strong communication in order to make sure that we are meeting all child find obligations. Um, I will get parents that do call me and say, I need, so-and-so told me I need my kid tested. Okay, then what I will do is call a meeting with the principal, call a meeting with the teachers, and we'll look at the data. You know, have they been through have we tried any interventions with the kid? If we haven't, and I think that we should, and the teachers think that we should, then I will issue a prior written notice that says we are going to try these these um, interventions for such and such amount of time, and then we will reconvene and look at it then. And that's how, you know, I do it in the virtual environment. I also, um, you know, we deal with schools all across Wyoming. So... I will call the previous districts. I'll, we get kids coming in and out a lot. So, you know, we just have to make sure that we have all of the entities involved that need to be there. And sometimes that can be a little bit challenging. I'm just going to follow up on that. I think whether you're in a virtual environment or a BRICS environment, getting those records from the child's prior educational experiences is so hugely important and it blows my mind that districts are not more active in getting them when you have the kiddo and more cooperative and sharing them when you've sent the kiddo on. Um, Cause that Kelly's right. That yes. data is going to be vitally important, especially in a virtual environment, but also in, in a bricks and mortar. Environment. And I think one thing too, you know, if that kid's been with you from the very beginning and he's in your you got one building, you've got two buildings, whatever it may be, as a director or administrator, going and talking to that previous teacher saying, 
Do you have any concerns? Yeah. You know, if he's a first grader, go to kindergarten. Even talk to some of the other teachers and get a very clear understanding of what's going on here. Those teachers may not attend those MTSS meetings because it may not be relevant in time, but having those people sit in or having that opinion or having that understanding is, is good. Because someone may say, yeah, you know, he does actually struggle with this. Or, hey, I did notice that she does, you know. So that is pretty important. So once you have that child find obligation flare up, you then make a determination whether you want to do additional uh, uh, interventions, whether it looks like MTSS, RTI, whatever you guys want to, whatever the school district wants to call it, that PWN should, should be issued at that point if parents have put it in writing. Correct, Karen? Yes. If the parent has requested testing and you're not going to test, you must document that refusal with a prior written notice. And, well, and one sorry, thing that I did find out too, Hunter, was sometimes the regular ed teachers, they don't know what child find is. You yeah. know, sometimes we assume. And I had to go way back and, you know, tell them, tell the principals, tell the teachers, this is child find. This is the law. This is what we have to do and set that process in place because sometimes they just don't know. They have this kid in their room. They they don't want to be called a bad teacher for saying, hey, he's way behind, but they just don't know what child find is. I want to sort of jump on that as well. I, I think there is also a perception among gen ed administrators and sometimes gen ed teachers. It, it, either they want to put the kid in the resource room and get him identified and sort of he's special ed's problem now, or they don't want to identify a kid who maybe has behaviors or disruptive kind of yeah. helpers because their perception is that's going to make it more difficult for them to manage the kids uh, through the traditional behavior matrix. And I just want to emphasize that special education identification, if it's appropriate, is going to be your best friend. It doesn't make it easier for you to expel the kid. I will admit that. But then we have a whole range of special education interventions and placements where you can actually solve the problem. So I, I think child find can be viewed with suspicion by gen ed because they think it is just a way to complicate their life. And I, I think we need to flip that narrative in the education community as much as we can. And the one thing I'll say when you look at high behaviors and whatnot, I work in a, a residential treatment. I'm an assistant director there. We're there for a reason. You know, having those yeah. resources, having those placements, it's always solid. I mean, that's we're therapeutic first. We want to focus on all that. And as we're going along the process, we also look at the academic side of it. So there are those options for those districts. Now, Wyoming is in a very special spot due to funding. For those of you Everybody who don't know. Everybody is, really. Well, Wyoming's 100% reimbursed. So that's one of those yeah. few things where oh. that, that ongoing funding is is... is that bar has been set by the state, which is MOE, and we can go down that road eventually as we have these discussions and further podcasts. Uh, but yeah, it, it can often be difficult. But I, I, yeah, Karen, I would agree. If you are hesitant, you go, ah, you know, we want to expel this kid or this kid has some pretty high behaviors. That doesn't sound good on paper. That's not a legally okay. defendable PWN. <laughs> That's right. Then the other thing I want to say before we move on from child find to the next step is for parents. I see a lot of parents not wanting to share information about their kid because they want their kid to have a fresh start or they don't want the, the, the teachers to like have it out for this kid. And I, I just want to gently push against that saying the better prepared the educational environment is to receive your kiddo, the more likely your kid is going to be successful. Um, I know it can feel sometimes like the school's got it out for your kid or you transferred your kid, you open enrolled your kid because he wanted, he wanted a fresh start for him. But dropping that child into a classroom environment where they may have struggled in the past, you're just setting up 
failure for the kid and for the educational system. So I, I, I just want to encourage parents, the more educators know before they, you know, prep, put hands on the kid, the more likely they're going to be successful. If you just drop him in the classroom and like cross your fingers, that, and, and that also increases educators' frustration. And it, it, it is not a great way to start off a relationship. One thing I'm going to note on my side, I made a little note, is, is from the teacher perspective on the general education side, I've seen it a couple of times, I've seen it many times, where the teacher goes to the parent and says, you request special education. You do this, it'll be faster. Don't, I'm telling you now as a general education teacher, previous teacher, don't, don't say those things. You're going to make false promises. You're going to say things that maybe the team meets and you're the only person seeing the struggle. That's, that's where the MTSS process, that's where like, how can we support you? That's where the director administrator is going to come from and say, whoa, you know, and then when the parent says, well, no, so-and-so told me on this date at this time, that if I do this, then he will, he will be tested. Now the administrator is on damage control because they got to say, no, no, here's mm-hmm. the issue. And that creates unneeded tension. When in reality, it could be a simple parent teacher conference saying, hey, we have some concerns. I would like to refer your ch- kid to MTSS or the, the BIT team or what, RTI, whatever, you may, whatever acronyms you want to use. We want to see what's going on. And I think the goal of the MTSS and the RTI model is, is to cr- provide that clear picture prior to testing. Because a special education teacher in the past, if you get a kid and you know nothing about him and they just tested the test because it was easy, you're starting from stage one. You're going to try all the early interventions. Okay, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. When in reality, if they would have gone through the process, it would have been very easy because you would have a very clear picture of that child. All right. Sorry. We'll move on from child find to the evaluation. So we're looking at the evaluation piece of it. Uh, they're going to test, and Karen and Kelly, correct me at any point, uh, in areas of concern. So that's where the team meets. They sit down. They go, yep, we're going to test. What are we concerned about? And they're going to say behavior. They're going to say speech. They might say PTOT, occupational therapy, refined motor, gross motor stuff. They may say, um, for an older student, transitional, life skills, things like that, functional. You know. And that's where it's really important for the parent side, as Karen said, to be very clear and candid. Hey, I have concerns about this because I've noticed little Timmy, every time Thanksgiving comes around, he gets elevated, he gets upset, mm-hmm. he might scream, he might yell, he might shut down. And you may not know that terminology, but knowing and even be able to put it in the best words you can, can provide that clear picture for the school psych or for the individual testing to go, oh, that's something I need to look at. Timeline-wise, uh, ID, uh, IDEA outlines 60 days. That is 60 days Sunday through Saturday, so to speak. Um, your individual states may outline that differently. Karen, can you further elaborate on that? First off, the federal regulation says 60 days from the receipt of the signed concern. So it's not the day the parents sign it. If they sign it and put it in the kiddo's backpack, it's the day that you push it out of the backpack. So for schools, it's important that you have really solid processes where you are able to log and document when you received that consent, because that's basically firing off the starting pistol for us to get on the track and start running. Uh, So 60 days under federal statute, states can have different timelines. They can have shorter timelines, but they can't have longer timelines. So for example, in Nebraska, the Nebraska rule says 45 school days, and the federal statute says 60 calendar days. Nine times out of 10, that works out to be the same. But there are times when 45 school days could be less than 60 calendar days or vice versa. And so then I always train my Nebraska folks, it's 45 or 60, whichever one is shorter. So for states that have varying timelines, they can articulate them in different ways. But the bottom line is it cannot be more than 60 calendar days under federal law. 
and you should check your state's rule to see how they've articulated that timeline. So Karen, let's say Nebraska, they get they get out on May 31st. The evaluation is signed on May 29th. What does that look like? We're going to have to either issue prior written notice, refusing that testing over the summer. And th- there could be valid reasons for that, right? If the child's uh, area of suspect, suspected disability is in classroom behaviors only, we don't have the context to collect that data. And so I, at that point, I would issue prior written notice saying, we're refusing to test your child now. We will begin the testing process in August and, and support that with a fresh consent to test. Or if it's something health related, I was just working with a preschooler uh, just, just this morning before we hopped on this podcast where she has significant medical needs. We did the evaluation over the summertime because having all that medical documentation and information is super important as we roll into the school year. So our choice is either to test over the summer and figure out how we're going to do that staffing wise or to issue prior written notice and refuse the test and then do it in a way that is defensible for the district. But then the parents have the ability to file for due process. Now, on a parent side, filing due process on June 1st isn't all that exciting because by the time we get the hearing held, you're going to be back in school and the school can be ready to test. You know what I mean? So usually we can work out these timing issues um, pretty collaboratively. One thing I will say, um, and I've seen it many times, I've heard about it many times, is, hey, we met, the parents signed, we're going to test in August. No, yes, the parents signed yes, that evaluation yes. piece. That starts the timeline. I don't care That's if it's, right. Yeah, even if it's if Nebraska says 45 school days, <laughs> if they sign that, it starts the federal piece as well. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. Yeah. There's actually a dear colleague letter out from the Office of Special Populations addressing this exact issue with states that have that 45 <laughs> school day issue. And they say, yeah, that's that's cute and all, and you can have your 45 school day timeline. But remember, we're the 500-pound gorilla, and 60 days is the outside limit. So it's, but again, I'm not saying, hear me, I'm not saying that we, every teacher has to be on a 12-month contract. There are ways to manage around that. You just have to be aware of it. And where I see this crop up is corrective action plans from state compliance checks. And it really irritates schools because they're like, you're the one that told us 45 days. So we got to be aware of how our paper is documenting our compliance with the 45 slash 60 day timeline. And something for service providers, special education teachers, school psychs. When they sign that, if you say, yep, we're going to test in August, but they signed in May, you have to do the testing. There's no way yeah. around. Just so. tell the parents, you know, you will send them the consent to test on August 10th. And then we start yeah. our timeline in August. Yeah. Yes. And I've what I've ran times. into is at the end of the year, teachers, if teachers have high needs kids at the end of the year, they're more than willing to come in over the summer just to assure that yeah. student is on a plan when school starts. So absolutely, I guess I haven't ran into too many of those major problems over the summer. And, and just uh, this is kind of off the top, t- topic of special ed for superintendents who have like an active and aggressive teachers union, you can always add an extended contract day or two to your special ed staff's contracts and then pull them in for that extended contract work over the summer. I think we're going to have to get creative in how we compensate special education staff moving forward because of the teacher shortage and also because we do ask them to do a lot of extra stuff around the beginning and ending of the school year. The the kicker is the shortage is not the excuse. You can't say, ah, you know, the SLP is off contract. We can't do that. No, you you get that signature. You are telling the parent you will be tested. 
hell or high water kind of thing. There is a great case that just came out where uh, the school lost their school nurse. And so they told all the kids with diabetes, like, yeah, either mom and dad, you're going to have to come or you're not going to be able to come to school. And the school's defense in court was, we can't create a nurse out of thin air. And the court was like, yeah, that's real cute, but we don't care. Um, <laughs> staffing shortages do not excuse your obligation to provide service. And I think it's one of those things from an administrative standpoint, going to the SLP, hey, going to that, whether it's school psych, whoever it is, who's ever doing the testing. I'll pay you daily rate, whatever it is. We just got to get mm-hmm. the testing done. Do you think you could do it this time? Like, what does it look like? Yeah. So, perfect. Yeah, there are and, many, and again, many. You have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Compliant with your yes. collective bargaining agreement if you're in a unionized state. Yes. Yeah. Wyoming is not that state. It's not that. It's my understanding. <laughs> that may always change. Um, so, additionally, when we look at the timeline, we got 60, may vary. Um, and once again, understanding the difference. The federal floor is 60 days, Monday through Sunday, whatever you want to call it, weekends count. Seven days a week. Yep. Yep. Don't go to your calendar and count just those school days. Don't go to your calendar and go, ah, we're off on Christmas. No, Christmas, all those are relevant, correct? Yep. Yep. Perfect. All right. So we do the timeline, we do the testing, and then comes the evaluation. uh, Or sorry, the evaluation, the results. Sorry, did I miss Can I throw one thing in, Hunter, real quick on testing? We need to test in all areas of suspected disability. Yes. There are school psychs out there that still believe that we have to do psychoeducational testing on every single kiddo. And if cognitive is not a concern, if academic performance is not a concern, and what we're really looking at is behavioral, I always like psychoeducational testing because I think the WISC and the WIAT, whatever, are interesting, but they are not required. And there are some school psychs who think that if we haven't done academic testing, then we haven't done testing and all the other stuff can't be done solo. And that's just, so just to get that misperception out there. Yes. No, I a hundred percent. If you, and that's once again, going back to the parents, if you have concerns, please bring it up in those meetings. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm having issues here. I'm not, you know, we're seeing this stuff like that. It's really relevant. Whether it's stuttering, whether it's behavior, whether it's, Hey, he just can't read. <laughs> you know, I, I, we get that. That's, that's stuff that's really relevant for us. So we do the testing. And I'm curious, as practitioners, what you guys do with the parent that brings the educational diagnoses, so to speak, the the doctor that's written on the prescription pad, dyslexia. Um, what, what do you do autism. as a practical matter? Yeah, <laughs> autism. So my understanding, and based on IDEA, uh, dear colleague letters, uh, there's plenty of guidance out there for just about anybody, including the parents. It has to be has to have that impact at school. It has to have, mm-hmm. have to be able to observe it. If you're saying, you know, little Timmy gets upset every time he sees the color yellow and suddenly at school we're showing him the color yellow and he's not doing anything, then we don't have the suspected concern there. So we're not going to look in that area. If you're saying there's autism and I may bring in a teacher who's well-versed in it, I might bring in a PCB, I might, I might do a variety of things on my side of the administrative piece and there's no concern. Everybody's like, well, I'm not seeing it. And I'm going to, in that PWN, the district has received yes. this. We've done the following steps. There is no current concern. However, it still does put that child fine. If there is anything down the road that does raise flags for any staff members or anything else, do you have to go back on that and say, oh, yep. we did have that concern. Let's move forward on that. Don't just ignore those things. Don't. That's right. the biggest thing. We piece had a of couple of, of cases like that in the virtual school this year. You know, they would bring in long doctors' diagnosis yeah. for autism, happened to be the most prevalent. Um, diagnosis that they had, but um, 
we would always have our psychologist look at it. We would meet at a team, meet as a team. I would talk to the teachers, you know, what are you seeing? And then we would issue a PWN to the parent, whether we are going to accept the doctor's diagnosis or not. If not, we would tell the reasons why and tell them that we need more educational data to help us decide mm-hmm. if this student needs to be tested. Yes, 100%. And I think writing that in the PWN, understand administrators who want to stick to those PWNs and who are like very firm on that. When you write it down, that is record. And that is you acknowledging mm-hmm. that there is some concern, there was some concern from a team member. So, um, excellent. Sorry, yeah, I went off on a little tangent there. So I have a little written down plan for us moving forward, um, going from evaluation to determinations to looking at the disabilities, et cetera, going to the IEP. However, we are fast approaching that 30-minute mark, so I'm going to stop us on the evaluation piece, and then over the course of the next few weeks, there'll be another episode that kind of picks up on determinations, looks at the disabilities. There's 13 out there. There may be more. Once again, the federal floor is there. Uh, we may have further discussions, uh, especially when it looks at dyslexia and other other yes. other disabilities. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. and trauma. Childhood trauma yep. is the other like sort of unspoken verification category. Yes. Yep, and, and that'll we be all a nice... See it. Yes. And then from there, we'll go into the IEP um, and have those further discussions as well. So the hope is this is going to be a two-parter, but we'll see, especially as we get to determinations and even the IEP itself and have further discussions. So um, yeah, thank you for joining me. And uh, we will conclude this episode of No Idea. You may find us on Twitter as I hold on one second, pull up our Twitter handle. I apologize. That is uh, No, N-O-I-D-E-A. And the Twitter handle itself is No Idea. And then no, the word no, like no knowledge, idea. I will make sure that's in the descriptors. If Karen or Kelly can put that in a, a better terms, that might be better as well. Um, I was just going to say I am on Twitter at, at Karen Hasi, And I will also tweet um, the link to this show. And uh, guys, this is going to be fun. I think we yes. all yeah. have lots to say. So it's going uh, <laughs> to be fun for us to do this. And as the audience, if you get questions, if you have certain things, always just you know shoot us a little tweet or shoot us a little message on there i have it pulled up and i will blast it to the team um the one thing i will say is if you say hey i need some legal advice <laughs> we will uh we will not be able to answer those questions <laughs> right right <laughs> for educational purposes only yes yes now, if you paint a very nice picture we might go to paint up a separate scenario that we may have dealt with and what we did in that situation or would have done in those situations but there is no way we'll provide advice on that <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, guys.